Um, a great passage on even trusting God and his sovereignty when trials and persecutions come. Before we look at this passage together, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time and his word. Father God, we pray to you now that you would help us and bless us as we study your word together. That you would open our hearts and minds to it. That you would give us wisdom and understanding, Lord. God, may we be like the early church who considered themselves worthy, lucky, and glad to suffer for your name. And God, as trials and tribulations enter our life, may we be faithful to um, praise you and thank you for it, knowing that you will produce patience and endurance in us. So we, pr- we ask for your blessing on our time together in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You've probably at some point in your life been told that you're not able to go somewhere. Maybe it's on a roller coaster. You were too small to get on the ride. For me, I was too tall sometimes to get on the ride or too big to get on something. I can remember a specific event when I was a child. One of my friends invited me to their vacation Bible school. It was a bigger church, and he was really excited that I was going with them. And I was kind of new to the school that I'd been going to, and so I was just happy that a friend was inviting me to go anywhere. And I went with them to vacation Bible school, and they had this really cool VIP room type thing that had games and all these fun activities and candy and stuff. And you got to go in it if you brought a friend with you to vacation Bible school. So I thought, oh, that's why he invited me, but maybe I'll get to go too. And I remember going up to the door and being stopped because I didn't bring a friend with me and I wasn't able to go. Now, in light of everything else that's happened in my life, that's not that big of a deal. But as we look at our text this morning, it tells us that the apostles thought of themselves as lucky, worthy. They were part of the club. They were VIP because of one reason. If you look at the end of the chapter, it said they left the presence in verse 41 of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then I have good news for you. You're part of the club. You're part of the exclusive group. But the bad news is part of being in that club means that you are going to suffer for the gospel. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 with me for just a moment, in Philippians 1, as Paul talks about the unity that we have In Christ, in verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but what does that next phrase say? But also suffer for his sake. We are part of this exclusive group club, and it's not a club of masochists, but it's a group of people who can suffer for the gospel. Paul tells us in First Timothy or in Second Timothy three that all who desire to live a godly life should expect persecution. So as we've been going in our series in Acts, we've seen different attacks. You know, it's such a great movement that's happening, this Christian movement that is starting in Acts. And you can just see how different things are trying to threaten that. We saw a couple weeks ago how there was persecution outside of the church trying to threaten the Christian movement. And then last week we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, there was sin inside of the church that was threatening the growth and development, the unity that the church had as a body of Christ. 
And so now we're zooming back out. We're seeing another event that is threatening the church. This time it's outside of the church in Acts chapter 5. But as we look at this passage this morning, and as we've really looked and saw throughout the entire book of Acts, I'm first of all amazed at God's sovereignty. Do you believe that God is sovereign this morning? That all of you are here for a reason? That God has brought us together, people who come from different backgrounds and all ages, all shapes and sizes. He's brought us together as his people who might not have had a lot in common without the gospel, but he brings us together as his church because he is sovereign and because he has ordained it to be that way. And even as we've seen in Acts, God has miraculously kept the church going through some different trials and tribulations And even in this passage, we see God's providence and his sovereignty. But this morning, what I want us to see, learn, focus on is this. It's that we can rejoice in the providence of God, even in suffering. We oftentimes thank God for his sovereignty when it benefits us, when it gives us what we want. But as we'll see in this passage this morning, we can rejoice in the sovereignty of God, even in times of suffering. Let's look together at verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. As we first of all, there's a lot going on in this passage. And so as we look at our points today, they're more like just mile markers of things that happen. And the first thing we see is miracles and multitudes. These are the verses that Keith read for us starting in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. We're actually seeing another summary statement that we've talked about in Acts. Luke would use these to describe what life was like as the church. And at this time, there were different miracles being done, signs and wonders. And he's about to describe these for us. Now, what I find interesting is all of this that is good that happens in verses 12 through 16, it's placed right after what? What happens with Ananias and Sapphira? You might think, well, they died because they sinned. How could that be a good thing? Well, as we spoke of at the end of the sermon last week, God wants his church to be holy. God wants his church to be growing in Christ, to be unified. And that sin was threatening that. And so while God wasn't rejoicing in their death, he does bless the church for rightly dealing with sin. And even these events that happen here, I think, are an outflowing of that. So we see that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the apostles. It's the apostles who are doing these things. And notice where they were. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. In Acts 3, this is where Peter and John went and preached the gospel after the healing of the lame man. Now notice verse 13. None of the rest of them dared to join them. Now there's some debate over what this actually means. There's two broad opinions on it. It could be unbelievers or it could be believers. Now I don't think it's talking about unbelievers for one reason. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So we see unsafe people are being added to the church. So I don't think it's talking about unbelievers not being there. 
I think it's rather saying the believers were afraid to join the apostles. And I think for two reasons. One's a minor one. They could have been afraid of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They're thinking, man, people are dropping dead, you know, and they, they told a lie in church. Is that going to happen to us? For a more major reason, I think they're afraid of persecution that's going to happen to them. And we'll actually see that in this passage, that the apostles are arrested. In verse 14, as I just read, we see that believers are added to the church. We've seen miracles, people are healed. We've seen multitudes. This is a number, it says, greater than ever added to the church. This is exploding, exponential growth. And it's not because of some church help series or some kind of strategic outreach event. It is just a genuine preaching of the gospel to the lost and they're being saved. And they're being saved in bunches. And notice it doesn't happen because the church compromised on doctrine. It happens because the church stayed faithful to the gospel and people were saved. Verse 15 shows the extent of this. So that even as they carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter might walk by them, by some of them, his shadow might fall on some of them. So they've got all these people who are sick laying on these mats, and they're just hoping maybe Peter's shadow would just cast over them. And you might ask, why did they do this? Well, in that time, actually in a negative way, the shadow of a criminal, if you walked past it, harm or bad luck was said to have come to your family. So they thought, okay, if that happens, if I walk in the shadow of a bad person, maybe if Peter's shadow could just touch me, I would be healed. Now, in all honesty, this sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? But look at verse 16. The people, so more people, also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the afflicted with unclean spirits. So there's more people coming from all these different towns in the area and in Jerusalem. And notice what that last phrase says. And they were all healed. I'm not saying it's definitely not going to happen today. If my shadow walks past you, you're going to be healed of some kind of sickness or something. For whatever reason, God in his sovereignty and his providence chose to work through Peter and the apostles in a mighty way to bring healing on those who were sick. And it only served to strengthen the testimony of the gospel. I would argue today that those who practice faith healing, and again, I think that ceased, their preaching actually brings harm to the gospel because of all the things that are associated with that. But this healing that happens here, it actually brings help. It brings confirmation to the gospel of Christ. So we first see miracles and we see multitudes. Secondly, we see arrests and angels. Notice verse 17. Everything's going good until the high priest gets involved. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They don't like what's going on here with the early church. Now, he said the high priest was Caiaphas at this time, but his family was also associated with them. They're probably part of this decision-making process. 
and the Sadducees, what do we remember about them? They were a certain party of Jewish officials who hated the supernatural. They hated the idea of the resurrection of the dead, of miracles. So all this stuff that's going on is especially harmful to them and what they believed. So it says they rise up. What does that mean? They're getting involved. They're starting to take action because of what is going on. All this is because they're filled with jealousy. There's this huge following now, following the believers, and they're all jealous. Notice verse 18. And they arrested the apostles. It's not just Peter and John this time. It's all of them. And they put them in public prison. Now, the last time they went to trial, they weren't actually put in prison. They were just held overnight by guards. This time they're put in public prison. They're being treated like criminals. One of the things we'll notice in our passage today is that the persecution is starting to ramp up. It is starting to get more intense. Unfortunately for them, something's going to happen. And notice, I want you to notice how brief it is. You would miss it if you're just skimming through this passage. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. So they put them in prison and an angel says, you guys aren't going to stay in prison. He goes, he lets them out. This is one of three times in Acts where we see an angel being involved in breaking someone out of jail. But this is the most brief the most abbreviated. Like we don't get a lot of details of what is happening here. And he says, go speak, go preach again concerning the words of life. The angel wasn't rescuing them from prison because they were uncomfortable, but because they had a job to do. They were to go preach the gospel. So he helps them do that. Now they couldn't go in the middle of the night because no one was there and it was locked. So look at verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the apostles hear this. They go the very next day, early at dawn. They didn't sleep in. They go and they start preaching again. Now, this is what I think is the most interesting about all of this, what happens the next day. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. They have no idea what's happened. They think everything is normal. They don't realize that they've been let out of prison. Look at verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. In fact, look at what it says next. They returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked it's like no one had ever broken them out the doors weren't open the locks weren't undone and we found no one on the inside it even talks about how the guards were still standing there like there were prisoners in the prison no one had any idea that they had been freed from prison <clears throat> and so think about how would you react to this if you were told this and you were trying to put them on trial well notice how they react to this it says verse 24 now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests 
heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. I would be perplexed too if I put them in jail and then the next day everything is like it should be except there's no prisoners and there's still guards there that are acting like they're guarding prisoners but there's no one inside of the jail cell. So it said they were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what this would amount to. What's going to happen with this? How is this going to shake out for us? Notice verse 25. This is probably my favorite part of the whole story. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and are teaching the people. Why were they arrested? They were standing in the temple and teaching the, pre- the people. What did they do after they were arrested? They go back and they do the exact same thing they had been arrested for. Like nothing had ever happened. In fact, if I was one of the officials, I would think, wait a second, didn't we put them in jail last night? Was that a dream? Didn't we put them in jail? They're back doing the exact same thing that we arrested them for. As part of God's sovereignty and his providence, these people would not be stopped. Nothing would stop the gospel from being spread. Not the Sanhedrin, not the temple guards. There were no locks that could keep them in that prison. So if I was part of the Sanhedrin, I would be pretty worried, wouldn't you? I would be pretty upset. I'd be wondering what's going to happen with all of this. Notice verse 26. And the captain, now remember the temple guard captain was the second in command of the temple officers he was not only responsible to the jewish people he was also responsible to the romans why to make sure there were no messianic pretenders that were going to challenge caesar so this also threatened his job and livelihood as well so he goes and tries to make it right he goes with officers and went and brought them in but notice that next phrase but not by force And this is where it gets interesting. You might ask, why did the angel let them out of prison if they still have to go on trial? Well, the point is that they wouldn't go on trial. The point is that now they're in a different position. They couldn't bring them by force. Why? For they were were afraid of being stoned by the people. They had the people on their side now. The people were listening to them being saved in multitudes. And just that extra day of preaching and talking to the people had them all on the apostles' side. So now the apostles come to this trial and they have a new security. They have a new platform that they are standing on. We see here again the providence of God. That nothing would stop the proclamation of the gospel. We see it clearly playing out here. Next, we see trials and testimonies. Trials and testimonies. Look at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. They finally got them there so that they could have the trial. And the high priest 
question them. But I'm going to show you, this isn't quite a questioning, but it's more of a declaration. He's not really asking them questions, but they're more like emphatic statements. Notice what he says. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I remember working for the Y and having kids that I would tell not to do something. And then they would go and five minutes later do the exact same thing that I told them not to do. And I bring them back, I'd say, well, didn't I just tell you not to do that? Yes. So why'd you go do it? I don't know. <laughs> they just go and do it again. Well, why did the apostles do it? Because God had told them to preach the gospel. He has two reasons why he's upset with them. One was because they were preaching Christ in his name. And the second reason I find very interesting. They were preaching the name of Christ. They were also, or it says they were filling Jerusalem with their teaching. And he says, also, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're blaming us for the death of Jesus. Well, wait a second. Who killed Jesus? And this is what's interesting about the Jews' relationship with the Romans. They wanted Jesus dead, but they didn't want responsibility for that. And why is that? Because the crowd was starting to like Jesus. The crowd was starting to follow Jesus, and they didn't want a revolt on their hands. Now, if you remember, the Romans were the ones who actually killed Jesus. But what did Pilate tell the Jewish officials? He said, I can't find any reason to kill him. And they still insisted, you know, let go of Barabbas. Jesus is the one we want on the cross. And he said, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And you remember what the Jews said? It's coming back to bite them at this moment. His blood be on us and on our children. Well, now they're thinking about it and they're saying, we don't want this guy's blood on us because the crowd was starting to like Jesus. So they're upset that they were preaching the gospel and that they were being blamed for Christ's death. Now notice what Peter says. He has a very interesting response. We must obey God rather than men. And this is really a summary. We use this a lot, and this is a great thing for us to remember. When God's will is being pitched against the will of government, we must obey God rather than men. But Peter's going to explain what this means. The biggest question is, how is God's will opposed to the will of the Sanhedrin? And this is what he's going to show. First of all, in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. It was God's will that Jesus wouldn't stay dead, that he would be raised from the dead. This is part of God's plan, his providence. Peter has explained this. He's expounded upon this in Acts. That while Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of God, it was the power of God that raised him from the dead. Why? Because death could not hold him. Because Christ was too powerful. He couldn't stay dead, but he showed his power over death in the resurrection. So the resurrection is part of the plan of God. Notice what else he says. He says, whom you killed. 
by hanging on a tree. What did they just ask him to do? Hey, would you stop blaming us for killing Jesus? And what does Peter say? You guys were the ones who killed him. And he uses a specific phrase. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. If you go back to Deuteronomy 21, it talks about how there is a curse for any man who hangs on a tree. Now you might think, how did God curse Jesus? He's the son of God. Why would God curse him? No, it means that Christ took on the curse of sin for us. He was holy. He was not cursed by God. But Christ, when he went on that cross, he took on the curse of sin for us. Because he, like we talked about in Sunday school, was a substitute. And he absorbed the wrath of God. So when he hung on that cross, God turned his head from his only son. And his son then took on the curse of sin. That's what Peter's talking about here. He says, you hung him on a tree. You were the ones who killed him. And then verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand. Again, notice God is the one who's doing this in his sovereignty, in his providence. Exalted him as what? Well, it says two things. First, as leader, your Bible might say prince or something else. It means to be the leader of a nation Um, It could also be like a tribal leader. Christ is the right leader of Israel. We talked about this in Micah, how when Christ returns, he will physically rule and reign in Jerusalem as the king. Not in any kind of spiritual or metaphorical sense, but Christ is going to be the physical ruler. He's the leader. Secondly, it says as savior. This refers to his messiahship. That Christ would save them from their sins. And he already has. He lastly says to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What does this mean? Well, we know that all of us as believers in Jesus Christ have our sins forgiven by Christ. Yes. But what does it mean? Repentance for Israel. That Israel would turn back to God. That God is not finished with Israel But one day Christ would come again and that Israel would repent and turn back to God as the people of God. It says in verse 32, And we are all witnesses to these things whom God has given to those who obey him. We're all witnesses with the Holy Spirit, it says. We are giving testimony. That's the job of an apostle. They saw the life of Christ. They saw his death and resurrection. And now they tell others about what had happened with the Holy Spirit. We see here trials from the authorities. They're under this trial. Then Peter's strong testimony of the gospel in the face of persecution. Lastly, I want us to see rejection and rejoicing. Rejection and Rejoice, and I don't normally alliterate my outlines, but for some reason this week I just had an urge. Maybe it's the fall weather, I don't know what it was. Rejection and rejoicing. Verse 33 When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Well, why would they want to kill them? Well, if you read back through Peter's testimony, why wouldn't they want to kill him? 
First of all, we see that Peter accuses them of being opposed to God. First and foremost, yeah, we're going to obey God rather than you. You're on the opposite side of God. They probably wouldn't like that, would they? Secondly, they doubled down and said, yeah, you were the ones who killed Jesus when they'd specifically asked them not to, do, to say that anymore. Third, they called Jesus the leader and savior of Israel, even though they rejected him as king and Messiah. Lastly, and this is important, if you read that last phrase that Peter says in verse 32, and we are witnesses of these things and the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Why did the Pharisees and the religious leaders not accept the gospel? Well, Peter's saying it's because we have the Holy Spirit and you did not obey him. We have the Spirit of God. You did not listen to the Spirit of God and obey him. And so what he's basically saying is you've not accepted the gospel. You are not listening to the plan of God. So yes, if you're part of the Sanhedrin, you would be very upset and I think they would have killed them as well, except for a man named Gamaliel. Look at verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held by honor of the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel is a very interesting figure. He was the mentor back when Paul was Saul and he was a Pharisee. He was a mentor of the Apostle Paul. He was a rabbi. And he shows a very tolerant spirit here. Now I want to point out something. He gets a lot of love and praise from people. And he does a good thing. He helps out the early church here. But his motives aren't exactly pure. I'm going to show you what I mean. Remember how I said that group. In fact, look at verse 17. The high priest rose up with all who are with him. Look at that parentheses including those of the party of the Sadducees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. They were at odds with each other. They believed different things. The Sadducees rejected miracles and the resurrection of the dead. So they were at war with each other politically within the nation. And Gamaliel knows, hey, if I get the early church off of this, they're going to keep being a thorn in the side of the Sadducees. So while he helps the early church, it's a little bit political as well. And I'm going to show you what I mean as we look at what he says. So he has the men put outside for a little while. And then in verse 35, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do. Be careful. Don't act too brashly. I remember working with my grandpa in the garage and getting ready to try to fix something or make some kind of mistake with a hammer. And he'd stop me, grab my shoulder and say, why don't you think about what you're going to do before you act and make more of a mess that I'm going to have to clean up? That's really what Gamaliel is saying. He's like, you don't want to react to them poorly. And why is that? Well, he gives two examples. He says, first, for before, in verse 36, for before these days... Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. Now, we don't actually have a historical account of this person. There is a man named Thaddeus who starts a re revolt, but it actually happens 10 to 20 years after these events happen in Acts. 
So my guess and my best assumption is that this happens somewhere right after the death of Herod the Great's son when he's deposed as leader. He has a following. He has people that join him. But look at what it says. And he was killed and his followers dispersed and it came to nothing. Hey, this guy was a leader. He led a revolt, but he didn't truly speak for God. So he was killed. He was killed and it came to nothing. He uses a second illustration in verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people who were after him. There's another person, and this person we have a little bit more information on. He did lead a revolt, again, right after this king, or right after Herod's son died. And it happened about like Luke says, or Peter says it happened in this text. He had a following, he had people that joined him, but after he was killed, it dispersed and went to nothing. So look at what he says in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of men, it will fail. But he's saying you guys are going to make more of a mess with what is going on. If this is just a plan of man and it fails, you're going to turn the people against you. And they were probably right because there was such a large following of Christians. But I find it interesting what Gamaliel says. In verse 39, but if it is of God, it will, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, again, don't give Gamaliel too much credit. If he was truly a Christian, he would have repented and believed the gospel. Instead, he's just saying this could be from God. And if it is, you don't want to oppose him he's so close there's so many people in acts who receive the gospel there are others who come very close we're going to see a man who meets paul at the end of acts who says you've almost persuaded me to be a christian he's close to understanding the gospel but he doesn't again if he did he would have repented and followed christ so they bring them back in. Look at verse 40. When they called the apostles, they beat them. So they didn't get out scratch-free, but they actually did beat them. This was probably whipping with lashes 39 times. It's a pretty severe punishment that happened to these apostles. And they let them go and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Now, I do think it's funny that they've told them now several times don't preach in the name of Christ. But the apostles never give them any indication that they are going to stop. They've been told by God to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Now, if I'd just been whipped 39 times, I don't think I would be rejoicing but yet they are praising God. They're rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
They were so committed to the gospel. They were so committed to Christ. They understood the providence and the sovereignty of God. Hey, this didn't catch God off guard. Nothing surprises them. Nothing takes them by chance. We clearly see this in this passage that God is orchestrated in all of this. Even Gamaliel says, if this is God's will, you won't stop them. This is so powerfully part of God's will that he that they praise God that they were even worthy to suffer for Christ is that your attitude this morning are you willing and worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name not just on Facebook and social media wars not just at Thanksgiving with your family are you willing when life gets hard to suffer persecution for Christ. There are believers around the world who every day risk their lives and who even die for the gospel. Would you be okay if that was you? Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching that Jesus is the Christ. If anything, their preaching becomes more powerful and more emboldened because of this persecution. What can we learn from this passage this morning about suffering, about God's sovereignty? If God is sovereign, even in our trials, then we can preach the gospel boldly, just like they did every day they preached the gospel. In the temple where they could be arrested, they still kept preaching the gospel under threat of their lives. If God is sovereign, then we can preach the gospel boldly. We're afraid sometimes. We're afraid of what might happen to us, of what others would say. But do you have the courage knowing God's sovereign? None of this catches them by surprise. Someone says no. If someone rejects us, even if we face more persecution, God knew that would happen, so it should enable us to preach the gospel. Secondly, we can gladly suffer. I don't know if that's an oxymoron or not, but a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't mean we're a masochist, but it means we're willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Will you gladly endure persecution? Will you gladly endure trials for Christ? And then lastly, we can trust him. I think about that song that we sang before prayer, or before the sermon. What a friend we have in Jesus. Everything to God in prayer. We put these burdens on our own shoulders of trials and of persecutions when we can gladly trust Christ knowing that he is our friend and that he will be with us to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just these examples, Lord, in your word of those who gladly suffered for you. We ask, Lord, that you would just give us their courage, give us their confidence in you, their hope of the gospel, that you might help us to be ready and willing participants in suffering even for your name. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.